Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Beyond the Wire podcast. I'm your host, Tim Keller. Along with me is a snowy Mr. Matt Disher over there in Cincinnati. How are you today, sir? No complaints. We finally got snow. Man, I am the um, I'm, I am the biggest complainer about how all the snowstorms miss us. I think we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. There is this clear line of delineation uh, where where the snow always goes north of Cincinnati. And uh, so I think they were uh, forecasting four inches, maybe three to four inches of snow where I live. And there are nine inches sitting on the ground in my front yard. So super excited about that. So was the kiddo when he got to uh, stay home from school yesterday. There you go. And with us is another member of the Cincinnati area, retired Army Colonel, Mr. Todd Mayer. Todd, thank you very much for joining us today, sir. Well, thanks for having me. Um, and I do like Matt. I'm very glad that we actually got pounded uh, with some snow. And uh, I'm an empty nester, so my kiddos are gone. But uh, my dog absolutely loved it yesterday. <laughs> yeah, the, the animals always do seem to love the snow, especially when they don't see it very often. Uh, but yeah, before we started recording, uh, Todd was saying that, you know, he's not as young as he once was in shoveling snow. I mean, you guys only get it every couple of years, it seems like, out there in Cincinnati. So. I guess enjoy the the white stuff while you have it. We're supposed to get more of it tonight too, yeah. uh, and, and in the forecast. Now, of course, again, just like this time around, I'm like, yeah, right. We'll see if it really happens, and it yeah. did. So, you know, they they have this problem here where the news will blow it out of proportion that yeah. that it's oh here it comes everybody go to the grocery store and people will go to the grocery store. People will pick up the bread and the eggs and the milk. And uh, and then nothing happens. And then it rains for like three days. So, um, you know, uh, we'll see. In one of my many travels with the military, I, I don't know where I was in the world, but um, I remember one time a meteorologist uh, was given the uh, update in the uh, CG's briefing. And uh, we started to have a conversation later on. He asked where I lived. And I told him, he goes, oh, the Ohio River Valley is absolutely the worst place to try to forecast weather. <laughs> and, I heard uh, the same. You live here and pay attention to our forecasters. They're probably correct about 20% of the time. But Good. where else Where else on the planet can you have a job to, where you can be 20% hit rate and still keep your job, you know? Right, right. No, nowhere else in the world can you do that. But Could, could you imagine being a, a forecaster in San Diego or like Southern California? Like, it's going to be another sunny day. And that's all you have to say <laughs> yeah. because nothing else happens there. Yeah, unless was, you're unless you're training on Camp Pendleton, then it rains on you every single time. But that's I'm pretty sure that that's the only place it rains in Southern California. Yeah, yeah, for like 10, 15 minute spans, and it's done. It's back to being right. nice and while sunny again while you're sleeping. Yeah, um, I was gonna say, um, while I was over in Egypt there for uh, four or five months, the one day we woke up and they said it's gonna rain today, and it had not done anything but just been blazing hot and sunny every day since we had been there. And I'm like, it's not gonna. Look, look at the sky. It's not going to rain. It's never going to rain here. And sure enough, for about 20 minutes, it let loose. Uh, it looked like things were going to flood. It quickly, you know, the, the ground quickly soaked up all that water. But uh, it was fun. We, we had some, you know, impromptu mud sliding going on and slip and slides and mud wrestling and things like that. Because you put a bunch of young men with nothing else to do in a big torrential rainstorm in the middle of the desert. We're going to turn it into as much fun as possible. Right. But, of course. So as we always do, we like to go to uh, military.com, talk about some news, try to have a little bit of fun with it, and then get into the major episode here. Um, I pulled up two articles, Matt. I don't know if you have anything for us, but I, I did see an Army Special Operations School drops its three logo since it has been adopted by an American extremist group. It was uh, a, a 
group called Trauma Three. It was a um, it was a medical special operations group. Uh, wow. It it involved Army symbols, Marine Corps symbols, Navy SEAL symbols. Uh, but as of recently, since I want to say 2008, a group called the Three Percenters has adopted that three surrounded by a circle of stars symbol. So I guess after probably years of debate, they've decided to drop their logo. So Matt, my question to you is: If somebody decides to start using our logo for whatever reason, are we we changing things up? Well, we just we just lawyer up and we you know <laughs> we change the game on them. Um, but uh, you know, this is not. I, I don't think that this is the first time that this kind of thing has happened. Now, you know, because everybody has a logo now. I'm, I'm I've seen the. The, the, the Roman numeral three on cars before. I, I was not aware that it's an extremist group. I'm not sure. I, I have no reference of this, but um, it's not the first time that the military has been copied by any group outside yeah. of the military. Uh, and I'll just reference like one thing in pop culture. I, I am 99% certain that, uh, let's say 15 years ago, everybody back here in the civilian world started growing a beard. Like it became the popular thing to do for the mm-hmm. longest time. Nobody had beards. And I, I am 99% certain because they saw the videos of special operations forces, you know, storming the hills in Afghanistan with their big bushy beards and camouflage yeah. on that, that men across America wanted to emulate that. And so, um, I, I've had, I've been challenged on that before, but it was, it was, the timing was awfully close where that kind of stuff was happening. This is the kind of thing where, you know, you see guys after the movie, uh, uh not Lone Survivor. American Sniper came out and you saw the Punisher logo on those guys' vests on their body armor. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for anybody listening, that was Chris Kyle's group and the Navy SEALs. Um, then you start seeing that sticker pop up on, on, uh, people's cars. Um, so anytime there's a, you know, militaristic group or, or a military group, um, another thing is the movie 300, the Spartans in the movie 300. And that's everybody, everybody gets the Spartan sticker on the back of their vehicle. You know, that stuff is, it's emulated. It's copied. It's, uh, it is. You know, and in, in the history of Americans returning back from foreign wars or whatever, just massive amounts of folks serving in World War II, we had 18 million people in uniform. And, you know, a lot of, a lot for a lot of the enlisted guys coming into the military back then, you know, the army was issuing what we call wife beater t-shirts now. Well, that was the first time these guys ever were exposed to a t-shirt. And after the war, you know, they came home, they started wearing T-shirts. Mm-hmm. You know, prior to that, our society did not wear T-shirts. You had a collar shirt on. And I think very similar to um, that and not so much in, in clothing, but uh, another habit was after Desert Storm, we drank bottled water. You know, I never drank bottled water before 1990. Right. And after I came back, you know, everybody was looking for bottled water. Everybody thought, oh, the best water and all a bottle of water was in desert storm was taken from a you know same place they got tap water they just filled it in and, mm-hmm. and took it out to the troops so you saw that phenomenon uh hit, hit the streets here in america and uh, we just have never discarded it I, I would love to write a book or compile all the information all the data like i, I talk about this quite a bit because I'm, I'm in recruiting and we are recruiting people from the military and one of the things that i talk about is that your you know, 19, 20 year old in the armed for the U.S. armed forces, depending on their job, is probably more technologically advanced than the average 19 or 20 year old out on the streets or going to college or what have you. And that's because these are people that are they're working on systems that uh, either a the civilian society will never see or 
B, the civilian society will not will not see for a number of years. And I'll use an example of that. Very early in my Marine Corps career, doing land nav, they gave us the, the pluggers, the GPS systems. Mm-hmm. And we could plot courses and plot plot uh, points on the map through the plugger through GPS coordinates. Nobody had GPS in the world back then. Uh, you certainly did not have. I didn't see a GPS in a vehicle in a car until probably six or eight years later. Um, yeah, I mean, to be fair, maybe it was five years later, but still, it was a it was something that most of society had not had their hands on quite yet. Uh, similarly, space saving, space saving flat panel TVs instead of the, the you know the deep uh, the deep the TVs, TVs that you have. Yeah, like if you look at a tank, I mean, Todd, you know you got tanks. Uh, you have a, you have a very little amount of space inside of that vehicle, so you have to same with an airplane, trying to save weight, trying to save space. So a lot of this technology. We were using in the military, people were using in the military, not that a water bottle is technology, but it's a trend that started, it's easy to carry, easy to move around, transport, et cetera. You can carry as much as you want to or as little as you want to. I will tell you, though, from my own experience, sitting in Kuwait in July, uh, it's impossible to keep plastic water bottles cool. Uh-huh. You can't keep them cool. You're drinking coffee water all day long, and you can't get enough water in your body. We discovered yeah. a, uh, a Bedouin method when we lived out in the desert. You know, this is back in 90, um, that if you wrapped a bottle, a plastic bottle with a towel mm-hmm. and then you soaked the towel, yep. the, um, it, it actually cooled the water bottle, uh, through the, yeah. um, so, so that was one, but then again, your definition of cool means you're drinking now 85 degree water instead of on it. <laughs> right. We'd wrap ours in our socks and hang them from the camouflage netting and, and soak them in water. And yes, you're right. I mean, when it's 180 degrees outside, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but when you're closer to the sun than any other body, you are uh, you, you, suddenly, yeah, your 85 degree, 90 degree water is, is amazing, um, especially when you're trying to chug it down because you, you just can't you can't keep enough water in your body. Mm-hmm. Hey, getting, getting back to the GPS, I just thought I'd tell you guys since we were going to talk a little bit about Desert Storm, but uh, my tank battalion that I was in as part of the 24th Infantry Division, which was in the 18th Airborne Corps, so we were on the far left flank of the attack. Um, I think uh, Schwartz Coffin is in his briefings always called it the left hook, but um, we had three state-of-the-art, brand-new, new device, GPS devices, handheld. Uh, one was with our scout platoon, one was with the battalion commander, and one was uh, given to the lead company, whoever that was going to be. So it rotated uh, back and forth based on our, our phased operation as we attacked into Iraq. But um, I can remember going to the training on them uh, because it was such new technology. Uh, but, you know, uh, to your point, Matt, you know, you'd have a 19-year-old scout in the lead vehicle that was designated the GPS man. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, hell, none of the officers knew how to use it, you know, senior NCOs, but, you know, that, that specialist or PFC, uh, what was the guy that was leading, leading the unit into combat? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so many innovations have come through, um, military progress and the need for specific things for specific, uh, jobs. And, you know, a bunch of them have finally made their way into the civilian sector and, uh, you know, the next 5, 10, 15 years, we'll see even more of those. So uh, thanks thanks to the uh, military for the water bottle, you know. Uh, the uh, next article I pulled up is, uh, and, and Matt, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is why some veterans could 
should consider a trade school instead of college than leaving the armed forces. Uh, I know for some, you know, getting out, going to college is going to be the right path. Some are going to get out and land on their feet and have a have a, a job lined up, have a you know uh, family business possibly to go back home to. For others, you know, maybe you went to the military because college wasn't going to be your thing. Uh, you might get out and it still might not be your thing. So there is that other option of going to a trade school. And as far as trade school goes, in my opinion, if you know a trade, it's always going to be needed. People are always going to need plumbers, electricians, mechanics. We, we spoke about this before. Right. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Matt, you deal with recruiting people for, uh, you know, a, a nationwide business. Most people would think that, you know, uh, recruiters are looking for people to, to come into an office and wear a suit and tie, but you can speak for saying that's not the case all the time. Right. I mean, these are, these are, this is a, it's not a new topic. It's, it's newer in the, in the world of jobs where, uh, America's population has gotten away from, uh, a lot of them doing, you know, hands on jobs or dirty jobs, as Mike Rowe would call them. If you've seen the dirty jobs show, uh, and dirty jobs are, you know, historically categorized as the, the jobs where people are working with their hands. They're out there getting dirty. They are plumbers. They're electricians. They're working on sewage systems and they're working in, you know, HVAC systems and things like that. The thing is that these are not, these are not always dirty jobs. Um, and these are jobs that are more and more coming into focus as, as jobs that are going to be in such demand that they are, uh, they're, they're typically recession proof. And that's for this generation. I mean, you got to look at, we have two uh, economic downturns now in, in my generation of adults, uh, 10 years ago, or 11 years ago, 2008, 2009, uh, and then this, you know, COVID related downturn. And, uh, you know, if you want to secure your, your career against economic downturn, you get a job or a profession that, that is recession proof. And if you look at skill trades, plumbing, electrical, HVAC, these are jobs that no matter what happens, unless the power completely goes out and people don't need you anymore, just, you know, barring nuclear war, uh, people need their HVAC systems serviced. People need their plumbing systems serviced. People need their electrical system. They, they're going to need electrical wiring put into their house or repaired, et cetera. And, and, and that's just scratching the surface. I'm talking about automotive repair. I'm talking about, you know, virtually any of these different, uh, types of roles, but the, a skilled trade school, uh, is, far less expensive than going and getting a college degree or a series of degrees. And I'm not, you know, there's a fine balance here. I, I don't want to discourage anybody from going in and getting a degree. But one of the big topics we've seen in the media lately, uh, among politicians especially, is this uh, student loan forgiveness idea. And it is that people have all of this student loan debt and they're not making enough money to cover it or they're going to be paying it off for 10 or 15 or 20 years, which is true in many cases. Um, for people leaving the armed forces, you know, if you have the GI Bill that you're eligible for, or even while you're in the military, you can go through some of these trade schools. You can start learning some of these jobs. Um, these are jobs that now on the outside are paying anywhere from starters. I mean, like at an entry level, anywhere from mid 60,000s up to, you know, I've seen $120,000 a year uh, facility mm-hmm. engineer jobs, facility maintenance jobs for somebody with just a couple of years of, of HVAC and, or HVAC and plumbing experience. So, it's it. There's probably a longer conversation that we we could have here around this uh, this type of work, but it's not a secret. It's just not being talked about 
at large because it's it's uh, it's not traditional. It's not the the traditional academia conversation. Go to college, grow up, go to college, get a degree, go put on a suit and work in corporate America. That's not for everybody. And you can make a really good wage. You can make a really good living uh, with very little debt uh, off of a skilled trade. So it's something to consider. Absolutely. Um, you know, and it's it's not easy. You're gonna you're gonna have those days, especially starting out where you're breaking your back. You're gonna be dirty. You're gonna be hot. You're gonna be sweaty. You're gonna be cold in the winter. But there there is um, there is some good money to be made out there. And if you are one of the people that know that, hey, school's probably just not for me. It's another avenue to take a look at. You know? And and a lot of these folks are still working inside too. I mean, that's the yeah. other thing. These mm-hmm. don't have to be. If you look at uh, you know, again, in my world, it's it's facility maintenance and engineering. It's it's working inside of office buildings and inside of retail centers and things like that. Climate controlled centers. Yeah, every once in a while, maybe you might have to go outside and plug something in. But who doesn't? We were talking about shoveling snow right at our own houses. This is my office now. Uh, we were outside shoveling snow. Um, so there's going to be an element of that, you know, at any rate. But the thing is, uh, we have a, a growing generation of. Um, of people who, who lacks uh, trades, they lack skills. Mm-hmm. In other words, they can do this kind of stuff all day, but they can't really do much else. Um, and I talk about that with my own son, you know, what sort of capacity does he have to build something? Could he build a table? Could he do a minor repair inside of the house? Could he fix a piece of furniture? Um, maybe not at the age of nine, but in his future, you know, hopefully he learns something like that. And I'm not comparing nearly uh, a minor home repair to somebody with a an HVAC skilled trades background, but um, these are jobs that and, and skill sets that people lack in the current upcoming generation of men and women in the United States uh, that are not that hard to pick up in some cases, at least at a very basic knowledge uh, level. I know for me personally, I, I can do a bunch of the things around the house uh, when it comes to automotive mechanics. It's never been my forte. Change tires, change oil. I've done brakes before, starters. Uh, but when something starts making a noise in the engine, I'm that's not, not me. I'm part. just going to mess things up, or I'm going to lose parts. So I'm not touching mine. I, I, I take it. I take it to it. the pros that know what they're doing. Right. Uh, so right. I, you you got to know that limit. You know, draw that line in the sand. Like, hey, that that one's out of my out of my field. So yeah. But let's let's start talking to our guests a little bit here. Uh, so, Mr. Mayor. You are a retired Army colonel, correct? Correct. And how long did you serve in the U.S. Army? So I was first commissioned in 1985, so a total of 30 years. Thank you. And a a big mixture. So I had uh, six years of active duty right out of the chute, regular Army. Uh, Resigned my commission. uh, Went went to work in the civilian world. Regretted it. Uh, Missed the military. Missed the camaraderie. Um, went in the National Guard at the time I was living in Louisiana. Um, so uh, started in the Guard. I uh, got transferred back to my hometown of Cincinnati with my civilian company. So then I transferred to the Ohio Guard. And uh, during that career, I had uh, four more additional years of active duty uh, due to uh, mobilizations. So a uh, total of 10 years active, 20 traditional National Guard type years, if you can call it traditional anymore. You know, when I first got in the Guard, it truly was, you know, um, a training meeting via phone, um, the, the two weeks in the summer and, and the weekends, because that's all what was in the budget. But, uh, after 9-11, all that changed. Um, more, more training, uh, extended schools, 
uh, everything. Uh, I, I don't know how young leaders, you know, your, your, your platoon sergeants, platoon leaders, uh, company commanders, uh, can maintain being in the guard and reserve today and, and also, um, be in that fast track in their civilian job. Uh, because most civilian companies are, it's just like being in the guard. You know, they have, um, very aggressive, uh, plans and it's, it, it's just overbearing. You know, you, you come home from an eight hour day, you eat dinner, you do something with the kids, you still have some work to do that night. Uh, so I don't, I don't know how these, uh, these young patriots can, um, balance their, their time these days. Yeah. I don't think I could have done it. You know, being being in today's society at that, as you're trying to make your way through the corporate world, um, you know, you're you're you know out of sight, out of mind on these deployments, right? Promotion comes up. Uh, well, hey, Todd's not here. He's a co- you know, let's let's give it to Johnny, and and you you miss out or you come back, and you know some of your responsibilities might have been taken away. There's there's laws to protect us being mobilized and gone, um, but we all know. Um, uh, again, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, you're guaranteed to be able to come back to a job, but sadly, you might have missed that opportunity while you were gone. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, you uh, can't, yeah, you can't. You, you can't substitute just you know sheer time and experience, right? So, yeah, there are laws, and uh, I I have seen firsthand not where I not where I am now, but uh, you know through conversations with other companies, I've seen discrimination uh, around those service members. I always say this that those men and women are exactly who you want in your business. These are people that take on more responsibility than all of their peers. Yeah. Uh, and, and while it might pull them away sometimes, especially during times of conflict, I mean, we're not largely being deployed uh, or, or pulled away like we were you know, 10 plus years ago for, for overseas conflict, but the chance is still there and training operations are still there. Yeah. Um, these are the people you want. I mean, they, they have committed to essentially something much larger th- than themselves and they'll still put on the suit and come to work every day. Absolutely. You know, I think uh, it's a constant battle. Um, you know, I worked for a Fortune 5 company, and uh, I was the uh, veteran affinity leader. Um, and um, a, a colleague came up to me and was in, in out of the accounting world. And we had a uh, individual that was mobilized and deployed, and they were trying to cover down on his work. Well, in their staff meeting, uh, one of the other uh, employees said, why do we even hire these guys knowing that there's a risk to leave, you know, Garter, which one was totally inappropriate and illegal. Um, so at that, at that point, I inserted myself, had a meeting with this individual and his boss and explained to them actually, you know, what the law is and uh, two outside the law, what is morally right for the company. Now, fortunately, this company had a great veterans program, had a very aggressive veteran hiring program. And, um, I, I, you know, just the, the, the money that they spent on, uh, they had a great partnership with Gary Sinise Foundation and Folds of Honor. Um, you know, they, they, it was a company that really put their money where their mouth was. But even in an environment like that, you know, down at the tactical level of corporate America, you still had people saying that about a, a, a member of, of the National Guard. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a constant struggle to ensure that our young men and women um, out there are, are protected and, and looked out for. 
And I, I, I would say, you know, to compare that conversation, Todd, it's the same type of conversation. If, if somebody in the office said, well, why are we going to hire somebody that might go out on maternity leave for a number of months extended? That right. conversation would not be OK. It would not be OK to say that. Um, but I have also fielded the conversation, Todd, about uh, why are we hiring this person? This person's in the National Guard or the Reserve. They're going to have to leave for two weeks at a time or maybe a month or maybe six months. And, and again, it's the same. Would we say that about somebody who's starting a family? Absolutely not. I mean, we, we would have to. I mean, that's um, that's a no, no. It's a huge no, no. So it's a it's a bad thing to even think about. But I think that we don't have these conversations or we were not having these conversations at large um, until a number of years ago. I, I, I keep saying this, that the, the conversations around the military and veteran population have largely really started to get really good in the last five years. It started in the post 9-11 generation of people coming back from conflict in Afghanistan. It really started probably in 2004, 2005. You started to see these conversations and these organizations pick up that were really supporting those men and women coming home. Um, but the conversations around how corporate America treats their veterans and, and their military service members and, and and all of the different advantages you get from hiring people in the military or guard or reserve components those conversations didn't really start to get good. And by good, I mean companies didn't really start to adopt that that persona, that ethos until about five years ago. And now I think we're getting, we collectively, society, we're getting a lot better at it. Still a lot of work to do. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, and I do think there's, there's a lot of work to do. Um, you know, I, I know some companies... You know, the, the one I was referring to earlier had a, uh, uh, they wanted to be at 6% veteran population. Mm -hmm. uh, they exceeded that in a five year plan and went to 7%. So, uh, which is pretty good. Uh, you know, uh, uh, more recently, I know, you know, very close contact with a company that, you know, kind of, they're, they're probably at 2%. They don't even like to give up their number. That's how bad it is. Mm. Um, and they're, they're just, uh, you know, I went to a hiring manager who uh, um, I had forwarded a resume to uh, a colleague of mine, and uh, it was the same. She, I said, "Hey, what, what do you think about bringing this guy in for an interview?" And she's like, "You know, I worked with a couple of guys uh, in the military before, and I just don't think he can do the job." Well, this guy was this guy was a, a, a retiring lieutenant colonel. Yeah. And uh, she could could have done her job. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, just to, I said, first of all, what you just said is inappropriate and actually illegal. You know, you can't you cannot, you know, rule them out because of their military service. Right. And uh, she brought him in and hired him. And it wasn't because of my influence. It was I said, just just interviewing. Mm -hmm. And once he got in front of her and interviewed uh, knocked it out of the ballpark, mm -hmm. and uh, he is one of he, he's he's one of those people already in the organization um, that's being looked at for further advancement. Right, all the guys' work ethic, all, all those ethos that we bring, right, uh, has them, and he's spreading them, and he's meant he's already mentoring. He's only been there a year, and he's mentoring people. So right. it's um, it, you know, but. You know, that person wasn't going to interview this guy. And this same conversation is, you know, again, and I ask people this question. I, I pose this as a hypothetical to anybody. If you applied that same statement to any other protected status, veteran status is a protected status. So if you applied that same conversation to 
uh, ethnicity or race or gender and said the same thing. I already hired some of this group and they didn't work out and I won't hire them again. Think about the implications of that. And the yeah. same thing applies to the veteran status uh, you'd be in the veteran community. Right. Yeah, you you be I mean that's 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 grounds for that's grounds for firing. Yeah. Uh but not only that, I mean that's a that's a whole HR learning opportunity right there. Yeah. Uh, so you know, Todd, you said something else that the companies who strive to be seven percent. So if you look at the, the population of the United States, about seven percent of the population of the United States are veterans. Um but if you think about how many of those are in the workforce, let's cut that number in half, about three and a half percent of of that seven percent are are actually in the workforce. So for a company to reach the seven percent benchmark, that's really good. Like you have, you've essentially, you, you, you essentially have a better representation of the veteran workforce inside of your company um, than the population is represented in the it's United States. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I know a few years ago, the Department of Labor, I believe, had a benchmark for companies for who were military contractors, anybody who had a government contract. Uh, had to follow those rules. And, and a while back, it was a 7% benchmark. Try to get 7%. My argument always was that they made the 7% based on the whole veteran population, but half of your veteran population is either retired or not in the workforce or not looking for anything right now or for whatever other reason we can't hire them. So it's uh, it's kind of interesting to, to see the companies that are reaching that 7% or higher. I mean, I see some companies that are like 20%. It's pro- probably easier for smaller businesses to do that than it is for, for big companies. But I think, uh, you know, in my role, we strive for those numbers. We strive for that larger percentage. We also strive for quality of, of career. In other words, I'm not looking at veterans for the, you know, $5 an hour job. I'm looking at veterans for, uh, you know, the E4, E5 coming out of the military for a $65,000 a year job or higher. Mm-hmm. So there's, while the volume is not there, the quality of, of pay structure and career is there. Absolutely. Yeah. So, t- Todd, you said you were first commissioned back in 1985, yes? Correct, yes. So what made you join the military? You know, it. Uh, I grew up in a different time. Uh, my neighborhood, uh, my dad was a World War II vet. Uh, my next-door neighbor was with the 5th Marine Engineer Battalion on Iwo Jima. Uh, neighbor across the street was an uh, uh, infantryman in ETO, World War II. His next door neighbor was a Marine Vietnam vet, ground combat in Vietnam. Uh, neighbor across the way through the, through the, the bushes. Um, he was with the 36th Infantry Division in, in Italy, World War II. And then, um, up the street, I had two Korean vets. Um, so I grew up in a neighborhood full of veterans, full of flags being flown off of houses. Sounds like a safe neighborhood. It was uh, great. I mean, yeah. just just asking the stories and and talking to them, and uh, and then uh, you know I discovered some some of my genealogy, and uh, going back uh, within our family that my grandmother had done some research on that sat in a drawer, and, and I was fascinated by it. You know, we had a we had a colonel in the American Revolution, um, you know, so and from there it went on down the line, the Civil War. Um, you know, World War II. Um, so it was, uh, I just felt like, um, I just needed to serve. And in 1985, that was kind of a new thought, uh, because you got to remember we were, uh, you know, at that time, we were only 12 years away from pulling out of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And the, the military wasn't, you know, after the, um, the riots and stuff in 69 and the Kent State shootings, you know, the military wasn't seen uh, in a favorable light back then. Uh, but I, I think that was the wave it started. The year when I first got on campus at Xavier University, we had three seniors commissioned in ROTC. The next year, we had about 10. My class had like 18. And in in my class, in the class ahead of me, this is tiny Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, with one of the smallest uh, ROTC detachments in, in the country at that time. Now they're significantly bigger. Mm-hmm. We have uh, currently serving in, in that two-year time period, one, one guy from the class of 80, one guy from, or I'm sorry, 84, and my class of 85. Um, we have a four-star Army general and a two-star Army general. So um, just is it was just the wave back then it started, and uh, I was actually pretty proud to be that it was uh you know Ronald Reagan came into office and the military started to rebuild after years of being neglected uh, from about you know seventy six on and um, new equipment you know the M1 tank the Bradley the Paladin uh, Apache attack helicopters um, the, you know the the training. Um, that, you know, everybody was getting NCOs, officers, the additional training, the National Training Center out in California. You know, you guys have 29 Palms. Mm-hmm. You know, everything that was put in there. When, when I fought Desert Storm, it was like, it wasn't new to me. It was like, oh, I've seen this formation. Mm-hmm. I've seen defensive positions. They were at the NTC because that's how we expected uh, the Soviet Union and, and their allies to fight. And Iraq was, you know, equipped by the Soviet Union and trained by the Soviet Union. Uh, it was just as hard fighting at the NTC as it was in the de- desert, believe it or not. The only difference is, is that they weren't shooting blanks at us. Right. But, uh, and, you know, and the, the other thing, you know, when I talk about, you know, when people ask me, what, why were we so successful? Because when we got to Iraq, Iraq had the fifth largest army in the world. And the United States was at about 18. And we were, uh, you know, we had great equipment. We had great leadership. But we had great edge. We were the most educated military force in the history of our country at that point. Everyone in my tank company had a degree or a high school education, mm-hmm. uh, which is which was uncommon in the seventies, right? Um, and uh, my 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 gunner on my tank, a staff sergeant, mm-hmm. at three years of college, got bored and uh, <laughs> army. And uh, very, very learned, smart man and uh, loved him to death. He actually saved my skin. Uh, my, my driver, same way, ran out of money. He, he uh, was at Iowa um, and he was a driver on my tank, two years college. Uh, and then, then there's my motor, but that's a whole different story. At least he got his GED. So, uh, but uh, we, we had a, we just had a fantastic group. And uh, I think that was one of the successes. And you all know the story of the American military. You know, we, you know, you, you pass the orders down, you pass the commander's intent down. Everybody knows that what you're going on a mission. Everybody knows what the mission is and why you're doing it. That intent's there. So as you lose leadership, if you do lose it, everyone knows what you got to do to do the mission. And I think that's important when it carries over into the civilian world. You know, you, you uh, as a leader in a civilian world, you know, you bring your team together, you go over the goals and the objective of the organization or a project or uh, project management. And uh, everybody knows, everybody down to that last carpenter or last electrician or, or 
whatever role you're working on, you know, an IT engineer. Uh, but, you know, I felt I felt that we had that in the 80s. I would not change a thing. Uh, absolutely loved the experience and uh, always thought about those guys from the hood. You, um, you, you, said a couple, you said a couple of things, Todd. One, the, the education level of, of the U.S. military. You know, I, am, I, am a, I have a head full of statistics, but uh, the U.S. military today is, is higher educated than the civilian population it serves. So from high school diplomas to college degrees to advanced degrees, the representation of those diplomas and degrees is higher in the, let's call it one and a half million active duty forces. I don't exactly know what that number is right now. Uh, compared to the population, the larger population of the same age group in the United States. So, uh, so you have all of these men and women. Uh, I have known people that, that had bachelor's degrees and master's degrees who were enlisted. They were like, I didn't want to go officer. I wanted to go enlisted because I wanted to crawl in the mud and get shot at. I know it sounds funny, but, um, that was, you know, that's the, those are the men and women that signed up for the military. They're not, they don't, they don't do it because they can't do anything else. They do it because they, I mean, for a million different reasons. They want the adventure. They want the experience. They want to go do something different. You know, in my case, it was a number of things, but I wanted to experience something that was much larger than what I would ever experience ever before or again. So um, I hear you. End, when you're, yeah. At the end of the day, though, all of those individuals chose to do it. Right. Because they weren't, you know, none of them felt forced to go in. You know, we have a volunteer service. You know, yeah. nobody in this country is forced to go in. And not, not, I know, I know we're not about politics in here, but, um, I think eventually everything kind of leads back to politics. And I think one, one thing that's really hurting the country with this selfless service today is that, you know, we, we have the lowest number of congressmen that have served. Mm -hmm. We had a draft in this country. And even if you didn't go overseas and fight in a war, you had to learn to work together as a team. You were standing out there at 1700 hours on an army post somewhere in the United States. When retreat was sounded and those colors came down and you snapped that attention and you saluted as a unit and, you know, you experience things, you know, uh, but people don't know, you know, when I tell them that when I first, you know, when my wife first married me and we were overseas and we're in a movie theater and the movie theater starts off with the national anthem and everybody stands up and I, I kind of warned her beforehand, she thought I was joking. Uh, but, you know, all those traditions of the military that you learn and, and what it really boils down to, it's it's not about your sexual orientation. It's not about your gender. It's not about whether, you know, you're wealthy or poor, um, you know, your your race, you know, you know, none of that stuff really comes into play anymore. It, it's about, can you do the job? If we get in trouble, are you going to be able to do the job you were trained in? Uh, to, to one, either complete the mission successfully, but greater two, to protect your buddy on your left and your right. I don't care. I don't care what, what you are or what you right. want to do when you're off time, but man, I do care that, that you can, that you can take that bridge out or, you know, hit that enemy tank in the first round mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it is, because you're going to help make the mission successful. And, and more importantly, you're going to save, um, the troops that you serve with. So, um, yeah, I, I, uh, your comment about how few, uh, people in Congress have served in the military, you know, in my own career, I, I went to college for political science. I fully intended to go to law school at some point in time. I wanted to go into politics. I wanted to, I didn't know where I'd end up. I just enjoyed talking politics and I enjoyed public policy. 
But I, I'd say from this perspective, from my own perspective, and maybe the perspective of other of others, a lot of a lot of us probably don't go into politics. We probably don't go into that that public service arena because it is not. It, it does not appear to be in some cases. This is just again my own opinion, my own viewpoint. It doesn't appear to be honorable anymore. It appears to be one gigantic argument, yes. and, and perhaps that's what politics is. See, but then when you when you mix in media and social media and public per- perception, it doesn't matter how good you intend to do. I think that it just becomes kind of kind of ugly. It was it was one of my fears for when people were asking General Mattis to go into politics. I was like, I don't, you know, I don't know if I were him. You know, he's got such an amazing legacy. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's not my decision, but it was me as an outsider looking in, going, man. This person's going to get in, and no matter what he does, right or wrong, he will end up being tarnished somehow, and it yeah. happens to all of them. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure again, that's another point of contention that we could talk about for for days. Why are why do we not have a lot of service members that go into the politics? But that would be probably my, you know, pretty like my, my number one reason right there. If I, had I, I would again. say I would say in today's society, uh, everybody's continually, especially with social media, you are constantly twenty four seven. Uh, four years at a time, just campaigning. You're constantly right. campaigning, and it doesn't leave a whole lot of time to actually do any work to actually do something that matters. Yeah, right. you know, and so, I was always kind of against the draft because, again, once when when I got in in '85, we still had a lot of Vietnam vets, mm-hmm. and you know, it's kind of like that kid that acts up in school. You know, the teacher has to like, you know, all their attention goes to the troublemaker in the class. Mm-hmm. Well, when you when you do have a draft and you have and it's not like everybody, not every draftee was was an idiot. Right. Um, so but you would get your I don't want to be here. I'm not going to you know, I'm going to cause as much trouble. So now you got, uh, you know, your your junior NCOs or your junior officers out there that have to deal with the knucklehead, you know, and for the most part, you know, to. um your earlier point, Tim, when you talked about, um, you know, everybody wanted to be there today. Well, these guys, they didn't want to be there mm-hmm. you know, a certain population. So they caused a bunch of trouble. But I, I think collectively, you know, f- folks, you know, now, you know, I'm exposed to a lot of these guys are in their you know, 70s from the Vietnam era that were drafted. And they, they are so glad they were because it was that selfless service that taught them so many life skills. But also it taught them about what it meant to be an American. And I think that's that's what we're missing, not only at the congressional level where they make our rules and laws for the nation, but as you dial that down, you know, presidents of companies, of corporations that haven't served, you know, hiring managers, uh, no one has that common knowledge anymore or, you know, what it means to be an American. And you, you do, you, you see it in the social media environment and everything else where it's this constant battering back and forth. Yeah. Uh, well, at the, you know, at, at the end of the day, we are all Americans and there's a lot of adversaries out there um, that are targeting us. And if we're, we're divided amongst ourselves, you know, you know what president Lincoln said about that. So um, I, I think it's, it's now, I think it would be beneficial to have some sort of mandatory service and it maybe it's not the military, but part of it is the military It's like Germany in the eighties. When I was stationed in Germany, everyone had to serve and do something for the country. Uh, if you went in the military, it was two years. If you decide to go work at a mental institute, um, then it was an additional three because you didn't have the sacrifices you had to have, you know, serving in the military out in the cold, you know, um, all that stuff. So I, I think that's what we're lacking in our citizens today is that selfless service and um, the common unity 
of being an American. There are there. I hear you too, and I I think that uh, there are a couple of traits that I always you know think of for myself and 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 how I've gotten to where I'm going and, and being successful. And this is these are traits that anybody could probably pick up along the way. But one of those is uh, you've probably not experienced. Um, you have to experience leadership, team leadership. And, and one of the jokes that I've seen on social media is if you think that all of these things that happen, uh, all of these different events that are happening in the streets are master planned behind the scenes. And there's like 15 people trying to, you know, pull the strings and riots and terrorist attacks, all this stuff. You've then you've clearly never tried to lead a project full of project managers or you've never been a project manager trying to get five people in the office to do anything while they're getting paid for it. Yeah. So one is leadership, team leadership. It gives you a whole new perspective when you are now in charge of other people because then you have to convince them to move toward a common objective. Todd, you used the term commander's intent before. That's something we talk a lot about on my team at work is commander's intent is simply take the initiative when there's a lack of instructions. You know where we're going. You know what we're trying to accomplish. So if you can't get me on the phone and you need an answer, you know what the intent is. Just move forward with that to your bet, to the best of your knowledge. You know, obviously don't, uh, don't, don't, you know, buy millions of dollars of stock on the company dollar, or do something silly like that. But if you know the steps you have to take, the course of action that has to be carried out, just go ahead and do it to the best of your knowledge, to the best of your experience. Um, the other piece that I'd say, aside from team leadership, and this is again, career development advice for people who want to get to the next step, uh, and it goes in, in, into your point, Todd, about what's it mean to be an American? What's it mean to be a productive member of society? Maybe is another way to put it too. Uh, team leadership and financial acumen. That's the other thing that I have experienced in, in my world is that people who don't understand how money works, don't understand how public policy works. And thusly, they don't understand where the money comes from and where it goes and how it gets where it's going. And in order to be successful in business, you have to understand finance and money. You have to understand budgets in order to be successful in your personal life. You have to understand how to uh, how to budget, how to invest, what compounding interest is. I mean these these things. We have uh, we have Tim Kester on here from time to time who talks about you know financial stuff. Um, but those are two things that I think people are missing. And then when we talk about again the 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 mixture of people going into policy making and and being productive members of society, if they don't know those things, they don't know how to lead people or advance other people, and they don't understand how money works, they are largely just loud voices. Uh, everybody has a voice these days, as you know, on social media. Everybody has a voice. Not everybody knows how to use it. And so and so they're, they're using this. They're saying things that maybe sometimes don't make any sense, which perpetuates this idea that, uh, you know, for military service, you know, if you just go out on the front line and say, all right, let's go do, let's go attack the Germans across the, like, do you have any intel about what's going on on the other side of that tree line? Do you know anything about the enemy? Have you collected any data? Do you have the right amount of ammunition and tools and, you know, fixed wing cover? I mean, do you have all that stuff? And if not, you're not prepared. It's the same thing going into the corporate world. Sorry, I'm on a soapbox. No, absolutely. Right. Todd, I wanted to say, uh, you know, you working in tanks, uh, my, my recruiter for the uh, Marine Corps was a tanker, and he was just every time I would be in the office, he'd show me another video. Hey, this is the training exercise we did, you know, in such and such place. And here, you know, here's us in 29 Palms and here's us over in uh, Desert Storm, uh, you know, and I get it. That was that was for, you know, that was his thing and he loved it. And, you know, uh, he saw this young kid. And he's like, man, maybe I could sell this guy uh, on the same thing. And you know, I, I straight up told him, I said, listen, I, I love the explosion part of it. I like the big boons and the bangs. 
I, I personally don't think I'm going to do well inside of a tank um, for an extended period of time. Same reason I, I would not do well on a sub. Um, but I said, uh, you know, what else can I do that makes things go boom and bang? And he goes, how about combat engineer? And that's how I ended up falling into that. But, uh, you know, still get to play with the explosives and make things go boom, but did not have to do it inside of a the body of a tank. So, yeah, I remember. Uh, so, you know, I was a second lieutenant down at Fort Knox going through my officer basic course for training. And, and you basically uh, you learn everything about the tank, you learn about everything that needs to happen to maintain it. You know, you're out there breaking track, you're, you know, clean out the engine compartment, you're doing everything you know, your, your enlisted crew would do. And I can remember the very first uh, uh, time I drove a tank at night through the night vision, you know, this uh, night vision goggles, you know, to 1985, you know, it's like, wow, this is, this is outer space stuff. Um, you know, I remember closing that hatch above me, sitting down the driver's hatch, you know, and just hearing the, 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 the hum of the engine and, and looking through there and feeling that claustrophobic, you know, it was like, yeah. that was my first time. What in the hell did I get myself into? Uh, but you know, you, you acclimate to it. And, um, after, uh, after a while, you know, a couple hours, um, it, the, the, that kind of went away. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, it was, it was quite an experience. I, I tell you, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Uh, that was the M60 A3. Um, and you know, in my career, I went over to the M1 and then the M1A1. But, um, yeah, the Marines that, uh, we, we actually followed the Marines, uh, for training in December of 1990 and they still had the M60A3, um, out at the tank range. And they were, they were coming off the range. I think they were converting to the M1, uh, before the attack. Uh, but we also saw the 82nd Airborne, which had a tank called the M551 Sheridan. Uh, which was, you know, just 1950s technology. And, uh, but it was very light and, uh, they were able to transport it and get it to where it was. But, uh, you know, we're, we're driving by those guys and they're driving the opposite way. And I'm just looking at them going, Oh, thank God I'm in an M1A1 going into combat. Because, you know, we, we didn't know what was going to happen. We knew what our plan was. We knew the operation. You know, we knew the mission. Uh, it was, it was all the way layered down. Uh, but again, we we were going up against the fifth largest uh, army in the world, and guess what? They had been in a ten year war. They were all combat vets. Uh, the only combat vet in my tank company was my first sergeant. He was in Vietnam, so um, we didn't we didn't know what to expect. But I, I was very glad that I was in the premier armor vehicle in the world at the time. I went through I went through anti armor school in Camp Pendleton, and I, I learned two things there. One was how few windows our tanks had on them compared to the French Leclerc tank or something. I think that's what it was called. Yeah. We had to learn, we had to lo- learn the nomenclature of all the enemy and friendly, uh, tanks throughout the world. So we knew who we were shooting the javelin missiles at or not. Um, French tanks had a bunch of windows and portals all over them. The, the, the army, the, uh, the U.S. Abrams did not. It had like the driver had the periscope thing. And then there were a couple other like windows up top, but otherwise I'm like, I don't, Tim, to your point, I can't imagine not being able to like look out the window. <laughs> I yeah. understand why, but you can't look out the window. Uh, the other thing I learned was how how badass the Abrams tank was. And um, when they talked about its armor and its ability to absorb, you know, uh, front atta- frontal attacks from other, like they basically told us back then, uh, no man made projectile can can pierce the armor of the front of this tank. It's it's the baddest thing on the battlefield. So, and then of course, Todd, there's the you know. 
Abram's speeding down the, the street, bumpy road, and the, the, the turret, the gun stays yep. leveled at whatever it's pointing at with firing solutions. So you just pull the trigger, I guess. I'm oversimplifying, but t- Todd, tell us about we're approaching the anniversary of Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've, you've mentioned a little bit of your service. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. You know, um, God, 30 years. And it goes by in a flash. You know, I just don't, it's, it's hard to believe, but I always look at my life as, uh, before Desert Storm and after Desert Storm. I think, uh, uh, our, our situation was kind of unique. I was in the 24th Infantry Division at Fort Stewart, Georgia, and, uh, the Army had this program called Cohort, uh, where you take four stateside companies of trained soldiers and you move them either to Korea or Germany and they fall in on a formation there. And then you backfill them in the States. Well, our battalion, 464 Armor, was a cohort, was doing that cohort unit. All the line troops had just left and gone to Korea. And we were in the process of the summer of 1990 to backfill those, those line companies. And the invasion of Kuwait started. Um, so they, they talked about replacing our battalion within our brigade. And a lot of people went and fought. Uh, to keep us. And they just started grabbing every 19 kilo of new E1, E2 out of Fort Knox came to our battalion to be our loaders and gunners. They stripped the NCO academies and recruiting command of all the 19 kilo um, tank commanders and gunners and brought them in. So um, at the time, I was 49% strength in my tank company when, when we got alerted for deployment. So within two weeks, we filled up our company and deployed. Um, so very, very unique situation. Uh, we, we had to train. We were all thrown in together. You know, it wasn't like anybody knew anybody. My, my lieutenants, my three lieutenants, brand new out of Fort Knox, officer basic course, had never been to the field before. Their, their first field environment was Desert Shield. My XO had a grand total of nine months in the Army. You know, normally, you, you know, your, your executive office pretty seasoned. Uh, but you know, we, uh, we did it. We, uh, we pulled together. Um, we, uh, were on that left flank, like I was talking about. Um, I think my company was credited with 30 tank kills. Uh, we probably captured about 200, uh, POWs. We had a few light casualties. Our battalion had seven light casualties. One, one, one serious, uh, guy caught, um, you know, shrapnel uh, in his neck. He was one of our scouts. I had to be medically evac. But, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because, you know, you guys, you know, we go through training and you talk about, oh, okay, when you're under artillery and there's an air burst, you know, you, you do action right. and You 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 know, you move your tanks out of the, the fire. You just, you just go. And uh, I can remember moving to an objective and uh, we came under artillery fire. But I didn't know it. You know, I'm looking up at this guy like, what are those black specks? You know, what, what is that? You know, and I'm about a turret and all of a sudden it just dawns on me. We're, we're receiving artillery. And, you know, I closed my hatch and dropped eyes and like, you know, called in the report and, you know, Hey, speed up. You know, we're, we're being observed and we're, we're under fire. Um, so it was, it was one of those aha moments of like, Oh, that's what it looks like. You know, cause in training you simulate it all, but, um, is, uh, you know, we, we were able to, to get all our objectives. Uh, the ceasefire happened. It was along Highway 8. We were probably 40 kilometers north of where you see the famous 
uh, highway of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we cut off the Republican Guard. That was our mission, the 24th Infantry Division. And uh, then we got in a little battle after the ceasefire called the Battle of Ramallah Oil Fields, where the uh, Republican Guard tried to pull back um, out of Kuwait with all their vehicles, which was against the uh, ceasefire agreement. And uh, they started firing up our scouts um, within our brigade, and the, the situation escalated. Uh, they brought in the 24th Attack Helicopter Battalion, Apaches, and uh, took out the lead columns and the rear columns. So you had all this stuff bunched up. And then uh, they used our tank battalion to counterattack into it. Um, and uh, we went up these two causeways that went over the Euphrates River Valley and just cleaning up what was left, what the uh, aviators didn't get. Um, but it, it was, uh, you know, the airland battle doctrine that was developed after the Vietnam War uh, was proven correct during Desert Storm. You know, you had all these super smart general officers and admirals that came up with this thing in the, in the uh, 70s because at that time the military was starting to shift from, you know, Cold War, Desert Storm, you know, how, or uh, Vietnam. How are we going to fight the nation's next you know, big war. And that, that's what happened in Desert Storm. Um, it was, you know, tank on tank formations, you know, it was the largest, uh, tank battle since I think, uh, um, Kursk in, in World War II. So, um, absolutely, uh, unbelievable, you know, uh, and I'll never forget till the day I die. Uh, General McCafferty was our, um, division commander. Guy had two distinguished service cross from, uh, of his service in Vietnam, just a true warrior. I'd follow him today if he asked. Um, he was the drug czar under President Clinton, so people might be familiar with him. He's been on MSNBC. Uh, but he, he did a short video for the division after the war was over, and he said, you know, when we came here, Iraq had the fifth largest army in the world. Today, they have the second largest army in Iraq. And uh, it was true. Uh, fortunately, the coalition forces, you know, we only lost uh, 430 uh, killed, obviously devastating to those those families. Um, but um, for what it could have been, you know, when you look at the Iran-Iraq war with the just hundreds of thousands of casualties, um, I, 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 I think we're, you know, I, I don't want to say lucky because I think, you know, what we talked about earlier, education, training, and equipment, all the improvements that were made in the United States military uh, paid off. And uh, that that leadership, those young sergeants, those young lieutenants and captains that grew up to be the leaders in Desert Storm, they knew what it took to win a conflict. And uh, the president supported them. Um, they, they supported Powell. They supported Schwarzkopf because those guys were in Vietnam. And, um, you know, just like the Marine commanders and the Air Force, uh, and the Navy, all, all of those guys were young leaders in Vietnam. And they said, let us do our job. And we did our job. Like you said, 30 years, um, it doesn't seem like it's that long ago, but, um, to anyone that's been in that, uh, arena, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Thank you very much. And uh, like like you said, Todd, um, overwhelming success. Um, went in there. You know, you, you mentioned we didn't have the same numbers they did. And uh, you guys went in. You cleaned house. And uh, in short order, 
you had one for the good guys. Yeah. And, um, you know, m- most people kind of forget the, the end result was the, uh, the freedom of the, of the kingdom of Kuwait. Mm-hmm. So all those people got their country back. Um, most of their people were returned from, you know, the prison camps in, in Iraq and, um, they, they are, are definitely a, gr- a grateful nation and a great ally of ours to this day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Todd, that's going to get us to the hour mark. That's about the time we wrap up. So thank you very much, sir, for your service. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Matt, you got anything before we get out of here? No, Todd, I appreciate it. Of course, so much having you on here. I We are connected on Facebook, and, and I see your posts. I, I know you're also a big history guy, uh, and, and so am I. And so um, I hope that uh, in the post-COVID world, we can uh, maybe do this live one day. I don't know. We can sit down for some some coffee or something like that. But um, totally appreciate you being on here. Of course, thank you so much for your service. I'll show you all my toys. We'll do it in the bunker. Right there, we go. I'll bring I'll bring the kiddo over. We can take a ride in the jeep. There you go. There you go. So once again, thank you very much for coming on and joining us. Thank you, uh, everybody, for checking us out, listening, watching today. Uh, tell a friend. Tell a family member. Tell a service member. You can find us on all the social media accounts. Uh, that you may be on. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms. Give us a like, give us a rating, give us a review. It helps us get out there to more individuals and like-minded individuals. So we thank you very much, and we'll see you right back here next time on Beyond the Wire podcast. Thanks, guys.